We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. There's probably life elsewhere in the universe, and we have to be humble about what our place in the universe is. That said, astronomers have come to realize quite recently that even though there are lots of exoplanets around other stars, it's still quite hard to find one that's as welcoming and habitable as our good old Earth. And if we're not careful, we could get ourselves into a real mess. That was Dr. Marsha Riki, someone who has a unique perspective on life in our solar system. A professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona, Dr. Riki is a key scientist on one of the most amazing projects in the history of space exploration. The James Webb Telescope launched on Christmas Day, 2021. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Dr. Riki is considered one of the founding mothers of infrared astronomy. For more than 20 years, she has been working on an ultra-sensitive infrared camera for the Webb Telescope. Her camera is a centerpiece of the Webb, a hugely powerful and tremendously complex telescope that is on a mission to unlock the mysteries of the universe. Listen and learn why Dr. Marsha Riki is one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. We are speaking today with astronomer Dr. Marsha Riki, who had a very significant role to play in the launch of the Webb Telescope into space recently. Dr. Riki, welcome. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're very happy to have you join us today for this conversation. On Christmas morning, an unexpected gift arrived for the world. NASA sent the James Webb Telescope into space. It's been called the most powerful space telescope ever built. And its mission is to study every phase of the history of our universe. What do you hope the Webb will find or will teach us 
What are your expectations? Well, my my overriding expectation is that it will find something or teach us something that we have no idea what that's going to be right now because it's such a leap forward. But that's not a very soul-satisfying answer. (laughs) Um, What I am hoping to learn is how did the universe go from its state just a little while after the Big Bang, about 400,000 years after the Big Bang, to the kinds of galaxies that we could see with the Hubble Space Telescope. There's kind of a big gap that you could think of as being a gap from when the baby was born to when the baby was a toddler and what happened in between. And so that's one of the things that one of the big projects is studying these first galaxies. The other project that my team and I are investing a lot of our observing time in has to do with studying the atmospheres of planets around other stars, those planets we call exoplanets. And we can measure the molecules that are in those atmospheres, and just maybe we'll find one where the composition is similar to the Earth's, or at least, let's say, could be friendly to life. So interesting and so fascinating. And lots of uh, reports to come, I guess, as the observations begin to take place and the pictures come in. Why was it such an accomplishment just getting the web launched into space? It is an incredibly complicated telescope. And the complication almost entirely arises from the fact that we wanted or needed a telescope larger than would fit in a rocket nose cone. and. So there are many engineering tricks that had to be played to ensure that it could fit and that it would unfold properly and that the sun shield that keeps it helps keep it cold would also unfold properly. So the moment after the launch must have been just a thrilling moment for you when you could finally exhale and see this launch occur. Tell us what it felt like. I mean, you're so involved in this, and you just described how difficult it was for this to take place in the first place. Well, of course, every rocket launch is a little bit scary because a rocket is basically a controlled explosion. So when we got the word that the initial burn put us into the perfect direction, that was one place we could exhale and say, hooray. But the real relief came some days later when we completed all of the deployments of both the sun shield and the telescope components. And particularly the sun shield is quite tricky because it has a lot of what we call single point failures, something that if it doesn't work right, then the project is kind of doomed. And all of those 300-odd single-point failures worked properly, and the sun shield is spread out, and the telescope is cooling as we'd like it to, and that really made us feel quite a bit better. And that, the very last of the structural deployments uh, occurred this last Saturday. Could you describe the specific role you played in the web? You're an astronomer and the principal investigator for the near-infrared camera that was aboard the Webb Telescope. You've been 
part of the development, the testing for the camera and the telescope as a whole. Tell us about this camera. What is it designed to do? What were the challenges you faced? None of us know a whole lot about this except your fellow scientists out there listening. So perhaps you can tell us how this is. Well, your eye can't see infrared light. And my instrument can see both a little bit of red light that your eye could sense all the way through to much, much longer wavelengths beyond the red. So that's why it's called infrared. And the point of these of observing at these wavelengths is that it gives us quite a different view on what's going on in the universe. In this issue of trying to detect the very first galaxies to form after the Big Bang, you have to take into account that the universe is expanding. And therefore, when we look at objects so far away, the light that they emitted as light that your eye could sense gets redshifted, just like an ambulance siren changes pitch when it goes by. Mm. The light changes pitch and gets moved way into the red. So if we want to find those galaxies, we have to look in the infrared. So first and foremost, NearCam is a camera meant to take beautiful pictures, but at wavelengths our eyes can't sense. The other part of the camera's job is that it's used to take the images that keep the 18 separate mirror segments of web aligned. And so it has what we call a mission critical function. You take an image and you see exactly the characteristics of the focus and so on. And then you get those images analyzed, do the right math, and you can make those 18 separate mirror segments that are the hexagons you see when you look at the telescope. You can make them work as though they're a single smooth mirror. And it, one of NearCam's jobs is to take the images that let you do that. And describing all of that, it sounds so complex. What were some of the challenges you confronted? Well, uh, many. One of the easiest to explain is that if we're going to detect infrared radiation, which is basically heat radiation, then the camera and the telescope both have to be operated very cold. That's, of course, why there's a sun shield, is to keep the sunlight off and let it get cold. But that means that when we were building NearCam and fabricating the parts, of course, we did that at room temperature. But when it gets assembled and used, it has to operate way, you know, at minus, almost minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit. And so to figure out how to make the parts so that when you get them cold, they do what you want is a significant engineering job. And so that was one of the most challenging parts of both NearCam and the telescope itself. So how did Marsha Riki get involved in all of this? Let's, let's go back a bit. How did you get into astronomy in the first place? Were you just fascinated with the skies, the stars, everything that that represents as a child? Or what led you to this field and this deep engagement that you've just described to us? Uh, when I was young, my parents, of course, took me to the public library and I checked out books and I enjoyed astronomy books. I also enjoyed a lot of science fiction books. And I was growing up in the era when 
we first had astronauts and so on. And when I went to college, I was thinking of being an aeronautical engineer because that was supposed to be a good way to become an astronaut. Well, I took one course in aeronautical engineering, but at the same time, I was taking a freshman seminar on cosmology, which is the study of the structure of the universe and distant galaxies and so on. Cosmology won. <laughs> I found that much more fascinating, and, and that's that got me on my course. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So when you were starting out, I, I would imagine, and you sort of uh, alluded to that a little bit, it being some years ago, there probably weren't many women doing what you were doing. Did you face any difficulties just because of uh, the fact that you were a woman? And if so, what was it like to overcome them? How did you overcome them? Well, actually, in, in one sense, I was quite lucky because by the time well, I went to a high school where education was highly valued. I grew up in a town where Dow Chemical was quite influential, and all of the parents were very well educated, and so they encouraged women to do things. So that was a big help. And when I got to college, ironically, the only class that I ever had at MIT where I was the only woman was a humanities class. And I found it quite annoying to always be asked, and what's the female viewpoint on this subject? Oh, my. Kind of felt like saying, go away. Don't ask me that. That's not fair. But in my physics classes and astronomy classes, there were always several of us. And, you know, we just didn't think about the fact that we were, that we were the only women. And I think that was very lucky, very lucky indeed. And when I came out to the University of Arizona as a postdoc, again, the attitude here 
there are parts of the university where women have had problems, but particular part I got into, I always was treated with respect. So I've been very, very, very grateful for that. Do you think women bring anything additional or different to the field? Oh, I think so, because different people have different balances between how they use logic to guide them, how they use computation to guide them, how they use intuition to guide them. And I think the mixture of those kinds of ways of thinking has a different slant for women. I think I have the sense that I probably use my intuition to tell me where to go look at something more than, say, some of the men in the field. But of course, you know, you can't live by intuition alone and be a scientist, <laughs> but, it, but it can guide you to what's a good good tack to take or what are good problems, interesting problems to attack. So STEM is such a challenge still for, for girls. Um, and you describe the nurturing community uh, in which you grew up, uh, certainly respect for the sciences, et cetera. What do you think it will take to get more girls interested in science and staying in the field and carrying it through the way you did? Well, I think having having a very supportive community will help a lot. And then I think there still has to be some very fundamental changes at many, let's just say, educational institutions, because I talked to some of my colleagues and the way men have treated some of the women is just absolutely disgusting. And that has to stop. And it has to be recognized that women are valued in science and that they can enjoy it and that there's potential accommodations made for the child rearing years. All of those things still need considerable fixing. Yeah, and they continue to be a problem and really significant problem in many ways in the fields that are still so dominated by men. I think one of the things that has helped me and is helping some of the of our graduate students here now and so on is that there's now just enough women in, in our department that the graduate students feel much more comfortable than they might have otherwise. And and we've got to keep working hard to get just that core minimum number of women in the field that others will feel more comfortable joining. Right. A critical mass helps in creating that. You know, I think about what you've achieved and, you know, working on a project with such a big idea behind it. I mean, looking at the beginnings of the universe, truly monumental. How does dealing with an idea like this shape your perspective about life on Earth? Uh, it has two big impetuses. One is that you realize that some people think they're so important on Earth and blah, 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 but you realize that we really are just one little pale blue dot and that there are probably many other other places that could be like Earth. There's probably life elsewhere in the universe. And we have to be humble about what our place in the universe is. That said, astronomers have come to realize quite recently that even though there are lots of exoplanets around other stars, it's still quite hard to find one that's as welcoming and habitable as our good old Earth. And if we're not careful, we could get ourselves into a real mess. And we seem to be on the verge of that, if not beyond. 
I hope not beyond already, but it is a worry. Do you find yourself and others who have such a deep understanding of the universe in in many ways compared to many of us more engaged on the climate issues? Yeah, I think I think so. Particularly um, if you're an astronomer, you've studied some planets in our own solar system that where something went terribly wrong. And by that, I mean, our sister planet Venus is at a distance from the sun that it, it could support life, except that somehow early in its history, its climate went completely bonkers. And it's now way too hot for any life as we know it. And and realizing that right next door, something like that happened without people causing it to happen, that it can just happen naturally. You begin to appreciate that it takes a specific set of circumstances and you need to be careful because it may not take much to tip it over and it could even tip over all on its own. And I really do worry that we may be getting to the point of a climate runaway. Well, you know, listening to you, it, it, uh, it's almost what you just said is, is like a call to action, uh, really thinking about the perspective you just gave us. You know, we never have enough time for these conversations, but let me ask you one final question. You described the complexity of working on, on the telescope over a long time, so your projects have a very long lead time. How do you stay optimistic? I mean, what makes you optimistic these days, but what gives you the hope as you're working on a project that takes so much time? First is the recognition that if you want to achieve a certain kind of observation as an astronomer, sometimes you have to engage in one of these projects because there's no other way to get that information. That said, you want to make certain that you're working with other people who share that view and who are extremely talented and knowledgeable about their their areas. And one of the beauties of the Webb Telescope Project is that it's attracted the most talented people. And I've always had you know faith that the people doing the thing, other parts of the project, the people that designed the telescope mirror segments and all of the deployments, all that stuff that they were the top drawer, top-notch folks. And the other thing that keep, makes me very optimistic is that the web project is an international project. And so there are people from Canada, people from the European Space Agency, a broad collection of people that have come together to achieve this goal. And the fact that we can all work together and end up with a project that's so successful give me a lot of hope for other projects on Earth. And it just must be so rewarding to be engaged in a pursuit like this. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, for making us so much smarter, listening to you. And thank you for your commitment and what you're engaged in because of what it represents also for our world. Thank you, Dr. Marsha Riki, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Incredible. What a great way to look at the world. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, it's good to step away from our day-to-day concerns and, like Dr. Riki, deal with the big questions. 
She's hoping her camera will help tell us about the origins of our universe and maybe even find other planets that could support life. Second, if we want to get more women into science, we need to support girls when they pursue a STEM education. But we also need to make sure that men in science treat their women colleagues well. Dr. Riki is not afraid to call out the bad behavior she's witnessed towards women. As she says, this has got to stop. Finally, space exploration reminds us how unique and fragile our planet is. And that should serve as a wake-up call on threats to the Earth, like climate change. Tune in next week to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.